0: Hello from Temple Bar in Dublin. You're welcome to season two of our Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company and Faultier Ireland. That opening track was from the brilliant band Coeur which was recorded at Tradfest in 2019. I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this week's episode. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking to festival directors from across the globe about their experiences during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're joined this week by Dr Aileen Delan of the University of Limerick. Aileen is an ethnomusicologist, a global Irish music specialist and popular music scholar with research interests in ethnicity, identity, nationalism and cosmopolitanism in the traditional and popular music of Ireland. She's also a very fine musician, let me tell you, and she's part of the Festiversities Project, a European-funded project that looks at the importance of music festivals in the lives of people across Europe. Aileen spent a considerable period of time working and playing music in North America, particularly in the Milwaukee and Chicago areas. Aileen, you're very welcome to the Tradfest podcast. And my first question to you is, are you from County Limerick?
1: Yes, I'm from Temple Glanton in County Limerick. And uh, yeah, it's a great spot uh, for traditional music. Um, It's got one of the largest, cultist branches in the world. And uh, it's been very, very active um, since the 70s. And uh, I play with a lot of the local musicians. I'm in the Temple Glanton Cayley Band, uh, the Senior Cayley Band. We won the All-Ireland in 2010. And uh, you recall, you actually came down to a hall in Chabon and did some recordings with us. That was uh, when I met you, actually. That was quite a while ago. But the music is still great. People are still playing and uh, great activities and huge hinterland as well. It's not just Temple Glanton people that come, but from all the other parishes around, tipping into North Cork and uh, North Kerry.
0: Would you describe Temple Glanton as being on the edge or just outside kind of this whole sleigh of lucre thing?
1: Oh no, that's a very political <coughs> question. I Excuse mean, you. M- you you might argue that West Limerick uh, <laughs> players are are perfectly happy to to assert their West Limerickness, but if you're talking the sort of about a geographic area and a repertoire, most definitely it is connected. I just don't know how the Kerry folk would feel about us West Limerick people saying that.
0: That's okay, because I'm a Clareman, so I can say that, you see. And uh, really, it's probably from experience and probably the nature of the music that's played there. Mm -hmm. From my point of view, there's a particular swing, beautiful turn in the music in that area. I presume that's just something that has developed because of maybe some local uh, inspiration down there.
1: Yeah, it's very box driven in many ways, fiddle as well. And I mean, polkas and slides are, are at the core, actually, of what people play and because it's music for dancing. So there's a huge dance tradition. And, you know, you'd have the hall in Turna that has the beautiful, uh, I think the Canadian maple um, basketball, uh, floors that they brought in, they imported to make the set dancing um, absolutely excellent. And of course, you know, people come from all around uh, to, to dance there. So the idea of music for dance is really, really important in the whole West Limerick, uh, North Kerry, and North Cork area.
0: Indeed, similar to County Clare, even though it's mm-hmm. a different type of dance, let's say, but it is that it's the music and the dance interlinked. Yourself as a musician, then, how mm-hmm. did you develop the fiddle? But I did see a picture. <laughs> on Twitter quite recently of a stringed instrument sitting in a corner and you remarking that you may get to it at some stage.
1: Yes, and I have gotten to it. Have I you? actually, I, I'm not a little player, I'm a flute player. Oh, sorry, okay. um, That's all right. Uh, just started like most children in the area, going to the local holla and Donald the Borough would have been my first teacher, followed by a very young Willie Larkin. And we weren't focused on instruments, it was very much on repertoire. So I would be sitting cheek to jowl with banjo players and accordion players, and so on so i never thought about the instrument idiomatically i thought about it as a a means of playing music in a very particular way so i think that's why maybe um you have that real push and drive in the music and uh, i started doing piano lessons in the local convent but uh, very quickly adapted uh, for piano vamping so i was never really taught that but love to play vamping and Kelly bands. And so I've been doing that a lot too. Uh, the instrument you saw on my Twitter feed was my uh, my poor uh, bazooki, which hadn't been touched in a long time. And um, I use it mostly, not really for a compliment. It's kind of for my own um, satisfaction and edification at home. Uh, I like to sing. I don't tell people that, but I do sing quite a bit. And so I picked it up and uh, I've been singing every day since, and it's been making the lockdown. A lot easier i have to say i don't know why i let it rest in its case for so long
0: that's very interesting i hadn't known about the singing i should have known about the flute playing <laughs> but there you go i automatically associated you with the fiddle in that area
1: i would love to be a fiddle player but i've tried to encourage my children to do that uh, instead and they've one of them anyway has taken up the mantle
0: what well, a bit of success in that fair yeah. play to you aileen now, how then, How I'm trying to track your journey from there mm-hmm. and from that musical background to your interest in uh, your ethnicity, identity, nationalism, cosmopolitanism, all that area mm-hmm. that you study in the University of Limerick. What drew you to that?
1: Uh, it's. A, I'll try and make a long story a little bit short. I guess uh, when I did my, my BMOS in UCC, uh, Bachelor of Music that's where I went to college, um, it was one of the few places that you could go to as a traditional musician, now I also played classical music but it was a place where you could study uh, traditional music and take courses and also write about it and so it was a passion of mine always to think and talk and write about um, Irish music but I also got into other musics on the way. and. Uh, I did my master's in UL on the introduction of piano accompaniment to the old 78 RPM records in the States in the 1910s, 20s and 30s. And that's when I really started to get interested in the Irish music diaspora. And uh, the kinds of things that were happening because I listened to some of those old recordings and I'd spent some time working in the traditional music archive uh, in Dublin and Harry Bradshaw was remastering lots of those old uh, recordings. And so I got an ear for it and I could hear all these uh, inflections in the piano accompaniment, a bit of jazz, you know, a bit of ragtime and started to think about what it must have been like to to immigrate to the the United States and, you know, to play the music there and the kinds of influences one would have encountered, but also how it was shoring up, I guess, uh, Irish identity and Irish-American identity. So eventually when I applied to do a PhD, um, I went to the University of Chicago. Uh, It's a fabulous school and I was really lucky to get a scholarship, but I also wanted to go there because it had a fabulous Irish diaspora. And I wanted to understand the different ways I guess that people have used or engaged with Irish music for their own a sense of identity and belonging and so you have these marvelous kind of historical and contemporary figures like Francis O'Neill and uh, Liz Carl and people like that who have stories to tell about what it means to be Irish and Irish American and how that's constantly changing for people. So that's really what I teach and talk about now uh, in my role as lecturer in, in UL. And also, I guess, from the other side of things, um, realising that this space between traditional musics as they're recorded and certain popular musics, uh, they're not that far apart, actually. And that nomenclature and categories and genres are things we really need to think about critically.
0: We'll think about those in just one minute. But I want to ask you, I'm interested in your assessment of that piano playing in those 78. To me, it sounded a bit disjointed a lot of the time. Maybe I'm wrong.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. I think, and I suppose this is what I I discovered when I was doing this work, and the argument I kind of made is that you had different types of people, different people on the payroll in these large uh, recording companies like Columbia and Decca. And in some cases, uh, the accompanist was only meeting the, the musician on the day and they wouldn't have sat down and talked about harmony necessarily because that sort of aesthetic wouldn't have been there. So you have some fabulous recordings by Michael Coleman, some very sketchy uh, piano accompaniment that in many ways detracts and then you take somebody like james morrison who worked really really i mean yeah james morrison who worked really really closely with uh, martin christie on guitar and tom banks on piano and their harmonies are so carefully uh, worked out and really support um, the melody playing so it's a question of to what degree were people thinking about this and rehearsing it, or to what degree was this something some musicians simply had to put up with because the recording companies dictated that, uh, you know, solo melody wouldn't sell. And uh, one of the arguments I guess I make in the thesis is that um, the piano itself becomes a very important symbol in the 20th century of sort of sophistication and integration. And I think in many cases, uh, you're absolutely right. Musically, it wasn't working, but uh, symbolically people were hoping it sort of signaled I don't know, the modernity of of Irish music in some ways. But also, I guess there wasn't a tradition. And if you kind of break down many Irish music tunes, they don't sit comfortably in kind of conventional uh, diatonic harmony. A lot of them, you know, are modal. And so a lot of the grind we hear when we listen to it is that that uh, clash between flat and sevenths or not or or people thinking i'll put this card there and it should work and it doesn't and in many ways i think that's why things like bazuki and uh, dadgad guitar um, became much more acceptable because of their sort of openness in harmony the sort of soundscape that creates is much more uh non-fixed um, and of course you, you have great piano players now and back then too but yeah the 78s it's very hit and miss for sure musically
0: i'm glad you said that so that was just, just just my observation now look mm-hmm. uh, i wanted to talk to you actually aileen about the festivities mm-hmm. project and this is the reason you're talking to us here on the podcast so my apologies for drifting off in the musical direction that we did but i'm just very very curious to hear your take on it but tell me about this Festivities. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that properly. You are, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So um, there's a European funding body called HERA. It's the Humanities um, in Europe Research Area, and uh, it's one of the few EU funding bodies that gives, you know, good money towards uh, research in the humanities and in the arts. And so the Fest project is a research project that's been funded for three years amongst five European partner countries. So there's myself in Ireland, a colleague in the UK, uh, Denmark, the Netherlands, and Poland. And uh, together we have a team of uh, postgraduates or postdocs or uh, students, um, TAs. And what we're doing is, is we're trying to understand the nature of music festival creation and production um, in these kind of national sites and trying to understand its role in people's lives and how important it is in building communities and also I guess who participates and who gets to participate at every level of the festival and how that works and how public spaces are configured and created during the festival time. Ultimately, I guess, with the goal of trying to consolidate enough knowledge and data to help maybe with, with policy development and recommendations, but also for me as an ethnomusicologist to really understand the story of the festival and the people behind the festival and kind of the decisions they make and the musics they programme and and why that should matter and why we need to, to understand that.
0: When you say affect policy What do you Mm mean by that?
1: Well, I think um, in in any research uh, project that's funded by the EU, the idea is that we would generate enough data that uh, you could make recommendations. And at a European level, there's great disparity in different countries uh, in terms of how um, the arts and the music sector and the festival sector is funded. Um, and so besides just writing research for other researchers and academics, um, I think it's really important that anything we produce or reports that we produce could be given uh, to to European funders, but also to Irish funders as a document, as a means to, to look at it and say, OK, um, you know, here's a, a good piece of research that we can draw some conclusions from and potentially help uh, think about things at, at a policy and funding level.
0: Now, I presume when you started out doing this you had an outlook or you had an overview or you had an idea of what you wanted to achieve Mm
1: -hmm. but in the last
0: three months everything seems to have changed.
1: Yeah, it's radically changed because, of course, there are no longer festival sites or festivals even happening, um, especially in the Irish um, sector. So many of the summer festivals uh, that we count on are gone. So it's changed our notion of what constitutes a festival public because, of course, people and bodies cannot be in the same space anymore. And uh, what we've had to do in many ways is start to track, um, I suppose, how people feel about this loss. So we're having very different interviews with festival organisers who are still reeling from all of this actually and wondering will they be around even next year but also seen amazing initiatives of people trying to think on their feet and uh, create spaces online and find ways to support especially to support musicians who would have been counting on this uh, for income and it's, it's been negative, obviously, from a financial point of view, but you might say for some people it has been uh, positive in terms of access because so much stuff has gone online for those potentially with not the means to attend things or with uh, disabilities that prevent them from attending. Uh, these new spaces have been uh, quite interesting too. But um, one of the festivals, one of my case studies is um, the Temple Bar Trad And I was lucky enough to be able to do fieldwork in January, I think it was the last major festival to run before um, everything shut down. And it's my hope that come next January, it will be up and running um again but it's been quite something to go back to those uh, recordings and photographs of the temple bar area and see it bustling and full of life and then look at photographs from the last uh, three months where you know you literally have tumbleweed going down through one of the most kind of active places um in the country so yeah that's that's right now we we're struggling with uh dealing with the online but it's just opened up new questions uh about um how we engage with festive creativity but also i think people are really recognizing how important these collective moments are um, not just from an economic point of view but from a a social and kind of engaging with people and culture point of view and it's my hope yeah that we'll come back stronger than ever but we have we have a barren few months ahead of us for sure
0: just to point out, 27th to the 31st of January 2021 mm-hmm. is what we're aiming for, for Tradfest. But you use a very interesting word there, and I think it does apply to these, and that's the collective experience.
1: Yeah, um, and I mean, that's the whole point of festivals, and this is the argument we made when we looked for funding. Sometimes people think that uh, these things are just about uh, commercial ventures or about, you know, uh, people who run the festivals making money and of course money is part of this but for most people it's about um breaking even especially if they're not commercial entities but As a people we need to be social we need to be with people and the kind of contact you have at a festival site whatever it is whether it's a greenfield site that's built from scratch or whether it's something like temple bar that's animated by particular activities in a particular moment that collectivity that um i think it was Durkheim called it evervescence that that intensity of experience uh, you cannot replace that um with uh on an online uh format you know you, you, you simply can't and that kind of visceral quality of being in a venue and moving and swaying the music or, or celebrating it uh it brings so much to people um and festivals you know they punctuate calendars people organize their years around certain festivals music festivals and that's how they connect and meet up with other people and uh when that's taken away that sociability that uh that community it's it's really really challenging
0: it certainly is and also for the artists I feel that okay you said that other things have developed from this because Mm -hmm. we have such access to artists online but a lot of those artists they're not getting paid for their wares so it would be interesting to know if there's an audience out there to pay for performances online (laughs)
1: I think that's exactly what's happening right now. I mean, artists are devastated. There are people who mm-hmm. have lost pretty much all of their income. Um, for a while there, it was looking like um, the art sector maybe wasn't coming through. Uh, the the, the uh, funding mechanisms weren't coming through, though there was an announcement recently of an additional... um. 25 million, I think, which is which is really good. But I have heard of artists selling instruments so they can finish their CD recording. I have heard of artists just trying every kind of thing and doing lots of work actually for charity, extraordinary work for charity. But because uh, they're not maybe putting paywalls on what they're doing online, much of it is an appeal to say, you know, please go to my band camp or please order merchandise from me or please maybe, you know, uh, consider uh, putting money into my uh, musical patron or something like that. So it's it's difficult. And um, yeah, I think I think uh, we're going to lose actually some very important voices. Um, But I'm hoping as we start to think uh, creatively about ways that things can happen, um, that people will recognize, the the public will recognize the absolute importance of supporting artists um, and just think differently about what it means to uh, not go to a live gig, but go to a virtual gig. And recognise that the work is the exact same uh, for the musicians. Okay, they may not be travelling, but the effort and in terms of learning about technology, I mean, people are being extraordinary and very, very creative. But uh, I do worry. I really worry about the art sector right now.
0: Yeah, certainly. It's been very, very difficult for performers the world over, and we see them ourselves here and all the work that they're doing online just to kind of keep relevant and to keep people aware of them, just to be ready uh, when it comes back. So I do hope, actually, that the funders, i.e. the government, will be strategic Mm -hmm. in the way that they disperse those funds in the coming months. Aileen, it's really great talking to you. Another aspect that you wanted to discuss, actually, and you feel it's very relevant, and that's Mm -hmm. the... Black Lives Matter, I mean, uh, it would be impossible not to be aware of the movement over the last couple of weeks and months, uh, both in America and across the world and in Dublin as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, I guess in Ireland, we're particularly connected uh, to the United States through diaspora. And I don't think there's anybody who doesn't have somebody living in the States Um, and seeing uh, the protests and um, the kinds of conversations and more importantly, actions that need to be had around um, Black Lives Matter and around racism in general is is uh, a daunting but very heartening uh, thing to see. But of course, uh, here in Ireland, we have our own problems around racism as well. And there have been lots of wonderful online events in the last number of weeks um, talking about these things in terms of uh, Black Lives Matter in Ireland, and uh, especially with the focus on those of African descent. And people like uh, Ebon Joseph, um, who teaches the Black Studies module in UCD, has been leading that. But there have been a number of um, Black Irish academics and um, people in the public sector and in all walks of life trying to get us thinking and talking about this, Um, but also uh, raising awareness of uh, racism against travellers as well. And the reason I suppose uh, I I think it's important for us to think about this in relation to music and culture is that we have extraordinary... um, traveller mincare artists in Ireland and also uh, um, black Irish creatives that are making music um, in many genres. We don't see as many artists in traditional music. And I think it's interesting to think about why that's the case, uh, because you do have um, first generation migrant kids um, Uh, learning whistle and learning tread, but maybe not persisting with it Um, and similarly while in the states you're going to have a huge number of Irish and Irish American artists supporting and giving solidarity to Black Lives Matter uh, there's also that uncomfortable side of the use of traditional Irish music um, Uh, in opposition, I guess, in many ways, to Black Lives Matter. And it's complex. And there are different registers of Irish and Irish American identity um, that use music in different ways, sometimes, I guess, to uh, challenge uh, racism and sometimes to consciously or unconsciously kind of support uh, structural racism. And I guess a lot of my work is in Chicago. And Chicago is a particular... um, uh, flashpoint uh, for relations between African-American communities and uh, white communities. And historically, uh, there's been a lot of tension um, around that. And I just think it's a real opportune moment for us to expand upon the work of people like Mick Maloney, who's been engaged with um, kind of uh, connecting Irish American and African American artists through recuperating repertoires from the past, Uh, but also looking to the present and looking at Irish festivals in Ireland and in, in the United States and just figuring out if these are spaces where everybody is welcome. And I guess one of my biggest bugbears if I'm allowed to use that term when it comes to Irish traditional music uh, is the manner in which uh, the extraordinary talents of traveller or minkeri um, musicians has been embraced but that never easily translates often in Irish culture to to embracing uh, travellers themselves and uh, it's just something I think we need to think about and start talking about and I think traditional music and dance and singing is a space where we could start to maybe scratch at these things and and think about um, an all inclusive uh, Irish music that embraces everyone.
0: Can you tell me how could we actually cross that particular divide?
1: I think visibility is huge. I think uh, I think you know places things like Coltis need to um, reach out to communities. I think spaces need to be felt. Irish music, you see, has been so long. Uh, connected and understandably so with a particular type of um, Irish identity uh, that can seem a little bit hermetically sealed to people who don't seem to kind of adhere to that you know this idea of coming from a particular place for generations um uh playing and being connected to this because it's the kind of soil of Ireland it's the the what's that German expression "Blut und Boden that kind of connection of the land and Irish ethnicity I mean there's lots of places and maybe this is for another podcast uh Kieran there are lots of places where where um the discourse around traditional music can be um, unintentionally exclusionary. Um, there's a very it's, the borders are patrolled quite quite um, definitively, and it can be hard for people to to find a way in and out. And I don't know if you're aware of uh, the TikTok um, meme that was going around of the African American dancer. Morgan Bullock yeah I mean very positively received from the vast majority of people in Ireland but there was a lot of racism around that too that this was co-option of somebody else's culture and she didn't belong and actually if you look at her dancing she's an extraordinary traditional dancer I mean she's top of her game so who gets to belong and who doesn't who gets to play and who doesn't why are we not seeing more people uh, of diverse ethnic um, origins maybe in the professional scene maybe they'll come to that eventually but even in competition in in and around um attendance at festivals i know when i did field work at uh, celtic music fest in chicago in the turn of the century you know the millennia about 2000 2001 2002 2003 uh one of the things that absolutely struck me was that people in attendance at celtic music fest which was in grant park downtown chicago uh would have been 99.9999 percent white and the only um african-american people i saw were the people uh servicing The bin collections, so working in the servicing and the logistics of it. And the week before, you'd have a blues fest, and it might be 60% African American, but 40%, you know, maybe. Uh, what we would call white or caucasian so these are just i'm i'm not saying i'm not giving out to anyone i'm just saying (laughs) no 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 because it's just more if we ask the question why mightn't we see that kind of diversity it could be because it's too early in our demographics it could be because those spaces don't seem like places people feel like they can express themselves or belong and i think um yeah i think if we want um traditional music, um, which is such a light within Irish culture and Irish identity, to to be representative, I think we need to see um, all kinds of bodies, abled, disabled, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, finding a space, and not just for the optics, but for genuine uh, connection. So maybe maybe, um, the paradigm needs to shift a little. So there's
0: there's work to be done, but of course, like not the in, in case anybody might get the idea, the entire population of Ireland doesn't play traditional music, or does it like it?
1: and listen as somebody who used to get teased throughout my college years I used to have my friends that I lived with uh, every so often used to put on a fake uh, show in the kitchen and they used to call it the pure drip uh, and and you know teased and there was a time there when it was decidedly uncool to be a traditional musician now it has a lot of purchase actually and there are extraordinary traditional musicians fighting for all kinds of social justice causes and really playing trad and writing songs that are are just so aware and and brilliant actually i mean the music itself is extraordinary and look i started this talk with you we were talking about me coming from temple Clanton, which you know in traditional nomenclature is a bastion of tradition you know absolutely but 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 as we change um how can we find ways for those spaces to to open up and include anyone i guess with a passion um, and who wants to be part, part of uh, traditional music making. And as somebody who teaches at the University of Limerick, I mean, we've had um, musicians come from all over the world, and I mean all over the world, to, to as, as really high-performing uh, practitioners of dance and of music. And, you know, they've often said to me, uh, you know, they have been accepted, absolutely. And because of their brilliance, they find a way to perform and and be part of it. But there's always been this slight uh, tension around not being Irish and what that means. And so, you know, we will we, we'll move through this like we do um, everything. But I just think if we're more conscious of that and more conscious of inclusivity and maybe recognizing that Irish music is no longer tethered, exclusively to a particular type of irish nationalism or even irish identity it's it's a it's a global music form and people all over the world are interested in it and want to become part of it and uh, to do that does not in any way diminish those who feel that for them it is the core of who they are as an irish person so it's about adding not subtracting
0: yes the old phrase was tis in the blood
1: yeah, yeah. And, and and I understand it because historically, you know, when it comes to Irish nationalism and the establishment of the Free State and the Republic... It wasn't really around language that we differentiated our, our, our need to be separate. Like culture was hugely leveraged in that conversation. And you can just go back hundreds of years and look at the ways that people talk about the distinctiveness of Ireland through culture. So this is a very natural discourse to have. And it's a very natural one to hold on to, but but. but you know, we need to historicize it and understand it and not diminish, and this is really important, not diminish people who feel passionate about this because they are connected to generations of traditional music in their families and they feel it's core to their identity. As, as I say, it's not about breaking that down, but it's about uh, respecting and allowing those of different backgrounds or, or different uh, origins to, to participate in what's an absolutely extraordinary music culture, music and dance culture.
0: Well, Aileen Delane, a positive note on which to end there. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real insight speaking to you today. And we will watch out for the results of Festiversities and that project that you're working on. Dr Aileen Delane, thanks a million for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We look forward to when we're all together again in music at next year's Tradfest, provisionally set for the 27th through the 31st of January 2021. And while we're all waiting for the day when it's safe to travel again, you can fill your heart with Ireland by going to ireland.com.